thought I was going to get strip searched. So that was good. Working in Southeast Asia, of course, people are not the same height as me. And um, so I had to put all my sermons in 14 font uh, so that I could see them on these, on these little pulpits. Um, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. I don't think I could have chosen a song that better expressed what's on my heart this morning than the one that we just sung together. Just beautiful. I was thinking beforehand, David just wants to make me cry. <laughs> Let's read together. We're going to start in verse 5 and read down to verse 12. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. <clears throat> and when they, had set them, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? We'll explain what this was in a minute. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today... That's me, is it? All right. Can you hear me? Okay. Thanks, brother. Verse 9. Uh, we'll go back to verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed... Let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of, Je of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we are your weak children, people in desperate need of you. And Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our minds this morning to understand your word, to understand the glory of your beautiful son and all that he's done for us, to apply it in our lives. Lord God, Bless us this morning as we read this passage. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's always a privilege to stand here, always a privilege to preach the word to my beloved church, um, Riverbend Bible Church, and a special privilege today to share it with so many of you that often I only meet once a year at impact conferences, and some people are meeting for the first time. Um, so it's a blessing to have met you and get to share the word of God with you. The huge blessing for me is this passage. A huge blessing is just what a wonderful passage of scripture this is and that it's representative of the powerful gospel message that was preached throughout the book of Acts and really conquered the world in such a short, or the known world in such a short period of time. And we're going to see that together, that the consistent apostolic message had three parts because all good sermons have three parts. Um, <laughs> it was a contrary message. It was a contrary message. Secondly, it was a personal message. And thirdly, it was most definitely an exclusive message. An exclusive message. Just to give you a little bit of context, we're flowing from uh, chapter 3. Flowing from chapter 3, Peter and John went to pray and met a lame man on the way. <laughs> you know the song? Incredible thing. It almost makes it into a cartoon, that song. This guy had been born lame, and they walked past him, and in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, say, get up and walk to the guy. And he gets up and walks, and he's leaping, and people just come running to see what's happened. And Peter looks around and preaches the gospel, preaches the gospel to this, this crowd of people. And many thousands became Christians at that, at that point in time by the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet there were those in that crowd, and we see it there, called the Sadducees, and they were not happy. They were not happy with the situation. And so they uh, caused a kerfuffle, uh, got the, the officials to come and arrest these men, took them, held them overnight. And what we see here is when they're appearing before the Sanhedrin, appearing before the Sanhedrin. So that kind of brings you into it a bit. We'll talk more about that as we go on. <clears throat> so the first, we'll come to the first aspect of this apostolic message here. And the first aspect, of course, as I said, is this is a contrary message. A contrary message. And working from, from verse 5 through to 11, this is our on-ramp into verse 12. Looking at the, the words, looking at the actions of the people that we see there, we're going to come to a conclusion about this message that we see before us, before us. And that conclusion is that we have a weak human, a weak human in the man of Peter, acting contrary to the desire of his flesh, speaking a contrary message to contrary people. A weak human acting contrary to the desire of his flesh, speaking a contrary message to contrary people. Let's see how that's fleshed out. Um, humanly speaking, our, our term that we would use today to describe the scene that we see set there is that we would say there is a massive power imbalance. A massive power imbalance. The Sanhedrin was assembled and this was usually made up of the chief priest and 70 uh, other ranking figures of Israel and they were both ranking in religious terms and also in political terms. F.F. Bruce says that it, it functioned both as the Senate and the Supreme Court for, for Israel. So they had a lot of power and prestige and were generally considered the educated elite. 
and they would form in a semicircle with the high priest in the middle and then 35 on this side, 35 on this side, and students closing it off on the back so you can maybe picture a young uh, zealot like Paul sitting in, in the back there, Saul of Tarsus sitting in the back there. And these guys are brought into the midst. What that means is that when you were in that situation, you had to come and stand right in the middle of that circle. Right in the middle of that circle. Surrounded by the most powerful, influential, respected, religious, educated people in all of Israel. There's a power imbalance. And Peter and John are what? <laughs> in their own minds, if we think about them in human terms, I'd be standing there going, what am I? What am I standing in this position? It even says there, Luke, Luke says in verse 13, they were seen as uneducated and common. Uneducated and common certainly didn't mean that they were illiterate, but they had nowhere near the understanding, nowhere near the education. They didn't have money. They didn't have a great family. They didn't have the prestige of these other men and these little guys standing there and feeling like they're, you know, the, the Sanhedrin, I'm betting, is thinking these guys are a pushover. These guys are a pushover, humanly speaking, humanly speaking. One question that you often think of in terms of evangelism, in terms of standing up in a situation like this, is was Peter naturally a bold evangelist? You've seen many of his sermons in Acts. We're thinking right now, we've already seen two of them in Acts, and you think, hmm, yeah. Maybe it was in him. Maybe he's just this brave guy. You know, may have been a bit, you know, silly sometimes, but he's brave. Well, let me do a little bit of chronology with you. The, these chapters were in chapters 3 and 4. You get the sense they're following on pretty close from chapter 2, don't you? As you're reading through Acts. Chapter 2, what's that talking about? There's a particular day mentioned in chapter 2. Do you remember what that is? Pentecost. Pentecost. That's this weekend, actually. That's great information from the source of all good information. My wife uh, tells me it's Pentecost today. If it's wrong. Um, <laughs> well, the interesting thing about Pentecost is that Pentecost comes 50 days after the... Um, oh, I've lost the word. Passover. Sorry, I'm thinking in Indonesian. Um, <laughs> I was just about to do my thing of asking, what's Pascha? You know, um, uh, 50 days after the Passover. Which Passover was that? The Passover when the Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. Let me ask you, what was Peter doing? What was Peter doing? Denying Jesus. Denying Jesus in incredibly forceful terms. And Matthew's account, he swore an oath. Secondly, he swore another oath, calling down curses from above on him, on himself, saying, I do not know this man. It was the last time he was probably in proximity, the high priest. But in that situation, so different, the people asking him questions are a couple of slave girls and some bystanders, and yet, just shattering failure. Shattering failure. Two months before. Two months before this. Peter's flesh was weak. 
His flesh was weak. And yet, you remember in John chapter 20 way, uh, 21, the wonderful, comforting, confronting way that Jesus restored him. Restored him. Commissioned him. Got him ready to go again. And this is the Peter we see before us here. Often, people look at Peter and say, I see myself in Peter. I certainly do. You often think, think that in terms of foot and mouth disease, don't you? I see myself here too when I think of how many ways I could have stood up for Christ and I haven't. If that's you and you see yourself like Peter, you know, there's something else, there's another way that you're like Peter, is you have the same Savior. You have the same Savior. That Savior has loved you from eternity past, took your name to the cross, personally absorbed the wrath of God for you, for every sin that you would ever commit. That's your Savior. So if your heart is heavy when we're thinking about this situation, if you're heavy with guilt, you can come to him. Come to him and he will restore you. He will restore you. That's the Savior that you have. And you can take courage in that. You can take courage in that. The courage um, to speak, as we see over and over in Acts, and it really stands out, is explicitly the work of the Holy Spirit in a frail church. Amongst frail people, it is the Holy Spirit who gives boldness. It's the first thing that's said about Peter as he stands up to speak. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. And this simply means he acted with a boldness that was not his own. He acted with wisdom that was not his, own, not his own. He acted with an attitude that was not his own. It was from the Holy Spirit. Peter had certainly had enough of being filled with himself. He knew he needed the Spirit's help. And all he had to do to have the Spirit's help was say, here I am. I got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing but you. Beautiful. And this is uh, coming back to a promise, of course, in Luke 12, uh, 12, 12, you don't need to turn there, where Jesus had said that he didn't need to be concerned because the Spirit would help them as they came under persecution and teach you in that very hour what to say. He could think back of chapter 21 of the same book and see that it was Jesus saying the same thing. I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I love seeing the Trinity working there where the Holy Spirit is perfectly carrying out the will of Christ. We see that in the book of Acts in chapter 16 where he's even called the Spirit of Christ. I love that unity um, as we see that there. But I want to point something out to you. Again, we think, well, Peter was the rock. Peter was this great guy in the church. Run your eyes down to verse 31 of the same chapter. Chapter 4. And we'll see there that this experience was not unique to Peter. Not unique to Peter. A bunch of believers being persecuted and coming together to pray and hold on for dear life to the Lord together. What does it say was the uh, outcome of that meeting they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness you have the same spirit 
You don't have a different spirit. You don't have a different measure of the spirit. The spirit is a person, not a commodity. You have the same spirit. You have the same Lord. This is a wonderful comfort to us as we come up to scary situations. So we see a weak man acting contrary to the desires of his flesh, his natural abilities, empowered with courage and wisdom that was not his own. And he was speaking a contrary message to contrary people. To speak of these men as contrary is the hugest of understatements. The hugest of understatements. As leaders of the nation of Israel, they had betrayed their God in the most disgusting way, sickening way. For all their lives, they had heard of the promised king, the Messiah who would come. And it was the hope of the nation. And God sent him in their generation. Can you imagine that? All your life you've heard it, and God sent him in their generation. And yet when they met him, they argued with him. They questioned the nature of his birth. They ridiculed his teaching. They looked past mind-blowing miracles and did worse. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit and said that it was by the power of Satan that those things happened. And, and to add to all of that, they manipulated the authorities to kill him, to rid the earth of their Messiah. Contrary does not begin to express how wicked these men were. Well, let me ask you again. I'll tie it to you. Tie it to us today. Are our generation contrary? Lots of yeses. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> yeah. The Bible clearly paints humans as contrary. Humans look at everything God has done in creation, and, and it is miraculous. Absolutely miraculous. Look at it and say, I don't want to know. I am not going to worship you. I, I don't care what you show me. Oh, I do it. We have contrary people. These are the people that we speak to, and let's get used to that fact. We're all seeing things change in our country right now. Humans are not changing. <laughs> Maybe they're just becoming less polite about it. We speak with contrary people. This is our reality, and we just need to accept that. One thing that's important to note, and I, and I believe it's to do with the filling of the Holy Spirit, is that in verse 8, Peter uh, speaks respectfully to them. He uses their appropriate titles, rulers and elders of the people. Think of what he could have said. He answers their question. Think of what he could have done. Through all of that rejection, Peter witnessed it personally. He was right there, knowing that this was the Messiah and seeing the way they treated him. He could have spoken so differently to these men. Think about it in personal terms. The, the dearest friend you have ever known. The only perfect man you've ever set eyes on. Your mentor that you love as your, your, your brother and more. And they murdered him. And yet he could still speak with gentleness and respect. More respect than gentleness <laughs> in this case. Wow. But again, come back. This is the spirit. This is the spirit, self-control, right? Filled with the spirit. Having said that, 
Run your eyes uh, down the passage with me, and we're going to notice that Peter is saying things he knows that they do not want to hear. Contrary things. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. They drag him in. They, they want to keep him quiet, and they're going, no. <laughs> we want all of Israel to know this. This is our declaration. Oh, boy, they did not want to hear that. <laughs> um, I've lost my place there. There we are. The next part, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. These men would have gladly called him Jesus of Nazareth. Don't, don't ever skip over the word Christ. That was not his surname. He's saying to them, this is the promised king. This is the promised king. And it's interesting if he was speaking in, in Aramaic or Hebrew, as, as uh, one commentator uh, believes, he would have used which, which word? Messiah, yeah. He said it better than me, whoever said that. <laughs> Messiah. Confronting. They did not want to hear that. Okay, speaking of things they didn't want to hear, whom you crucified. Whom you crucified. And he just frankly states it, and this is no exaggeration, this is no generalization as we saw in chapter 3 and chapter 2. These were the men. These were the men. And he just says it. You, you crucified him. And beautifully, uh, uh, we see uh, something that often comes up in Acts. Whom God raised from the dead. Whom God raised from the dead. You thought you got rid of him. <laughs> but, but God did not agree with your claim. He did not accept the verdict. I love this little inconvenient truth here for them. By him, this man is standing before you well. So there's this guy, and he's, right, he's standing right there, just been healed. He suddenly appears. and I can't deny it. They're like, oh, I, don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to look at that. God was obviously involved. Verse 11 is really powerful in this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. This verse is adapted from Psalm 118.22, and you'll know that Christ used this, this um, verse on a number of occasions. Do you see here that Peter personalizes it? You, the builders. You, the builders. He puts a point on it. He doesn't say it in a general way. He goes, no, it was you. And you are expected to be leaders in this nation. That's what builders was understood at as, particularly at that time. But you rejected him. You rejected him. And again, we see that God exalts him. God did not agree with your verdict. God did not agree with your verdict. Jesus is exalted. Now, verse 12, as we come to that, uh, that would have made them burst a blood vessel. It would have been offensive. It would have been nonsensical. It would have been straight-out blasphemous, as we're going to see in a minute. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no, under, uh, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, my fellow weak vessels, this is our ministry. This is our ministry. With a courage and a wisdom that is not our own, we stand before the people of this world who would like to erase the name of Jesus certainly the biblical Jesus, from every part of this world. And we upset them. 
we upset them by respectfully and lovingly preaching the truth to them that they are enemies of God and they desperately need Jesus as their saviour. It's our ministry. This brings us into the second aspect of the apostolic message. And this is a, a personal message. It's a personal message, and I'm not going to say what you think I'm going to say. I sound like Inigo Montoya. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that salvation is personal. I can't deny that. It's going to be all through this message. We know that people personally come to Christ. We know that people are personally chosen by God, and that's a wonderful thing. But, but what I want you to see here is that this salvation is all about a person. It's all about a person, Jesus Christ. And this is the core of every gospel presentation in the book of Acts, Jesus Christ. You'll remember that Peter is responding to a single question from these leaders. The question is, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Eckhard Schnabel, in his, in his fantastic commentary, very detailed commentary on the book of Acts, uh, points out that these leaders were forced to conclude that something supernatural had happened. They were forced to conclude that. A man who had been crippled from birth was walking and leaping and praising God. And, and they had walked past him numerous times, going up to the temple there. They possibly knew him and knew his family. So this was not something they could possibly deny. The issue was, what were they going to do about it? You can imagine this guy standing right in front of them, and he's, I bet he's going like this. <laughs> you know, they work. <laughs> they work. I can't believe it. Filled with joy at what the Lord had done. And these guys are there, and they have to conclude one of two things. They can't say it's not a miracle, but the source of the miracle is what they need to decide. Is this miracle from Yahweh, their covenant God, the creator of heaven and earth? Is it from him or is it from Satan? They're good Jews. They have to conclude either one of those two things. So by asking what power, by what power and what name, they wanted to know the identity of the supernatural source of this undeniable miracle. Well, Peter goes well beyond their question way beyond their question. You want to know his name? You want to know his power? I'll tell you his name. I'll tell you his address. I'll tell you his title. I'll tell you his death and his resurrection, his fulfillment of scripture. You can just see him filled with the spirit, pouring out praise to Jesus Christ as he declares him there. And then he leaps off. He leaps off using a play of words into the fact that this stunning salvation from sickness that this guy had suffered was a precursor to something far better, far bigger, and infinitely more important and miraculous salvation that every human needs. As you might have gathered, the word uh, sozo means to save, basically, but it could be used to mean save from hard circumstance, and we would translate it deliver. It can mean be saved from uh, sickness, and we would translate it healed in that circumstance. And it can mean saved from the wrath of God. And of course, we would just say salvation. And this is exactly uh, what he does there. He uses this verse in, uh, this word in verse 9 when he's speaking about the man's condition. And then as a noun in verse 12. So what he's saying is Jesus Christ is the divine source for this healing. But he's much more 
He's much more. He is the only means of salvation in all the earth. Powerful. Can you see that leap there that he makes? Notice again with me that Jesus is speaking about a person. Look at it there in, in verse 14. No one else. No other name. Eugene Nider in his translation handbook, you know a missionary is going to, going to quote from a translation handbook, um, helpfully points out that the name is a symbol of the personality. It's speaking of a person, the use of the word name, no other person. No doubt we have all heard someone speak or even spoken ourselves as though the name of Jesus is akin to an amulet or a good luck charm that grants us protection. I've heard that many times when you're in an aeroplane and it starts to bump and someone calls out, Oh, Dara Jesus! They're calling out for the blood of Jesus and it's like, I'm not sure what that's going to do to the plane um, in that circumstance. But it, it's not a good luck charm. The name of Jesus. Sometimes we treat it as an incantation that somehow adds weight to our prayers and we have to say it over and over again to make our prayer even stronger. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. We sometimes even treat it as a formula that guarantees our salvation. Well, his name is none of those things. His name is none of those things. The name of Jesus refers to Jesus. It refers to him, the person. To say that this man was healed through Jesus' name here, or in the previous chapter, through faith in his name, is exactly the same as what we see in, in chapter 9, verse 34, when Peter heals Aeneas and says what? Jesus heals you. Jesus heals you. To say that we must be saved by his name like it is here is identical to Paul's words to the Philippian jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Salvation is only available through the person, the person of Jesus Christ. Well, our, our passage here gives a, a very short uh, outline of the gospel uh, compared to other messages in Acts, but we need to see that it's very much related to what we hear in chapter 3. Very much related to what we hear in chapter 3. Why? Because the Sadducees were there hearing it, and the Sadducees made up the majority of the Sanhedrin. And you can imagine what happened. They're there, they're hearing it, and then they come back and report it to it. He said, what? They said, what? And so what we see here in this shorter version, we must see the influence of what was said in the previous chapter so that we can understand exactly what was coming across in this uh, more abridged version. And let me tell you, what they preach here is what they preached all through Acts. And what they preached was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The first aspect of this we need to look at, and, and so crucial, something beautifully brought out by, by Andre yesterday, was that Jesus is divine. Jesus is divine. He is God. He is God. To be the one source of salvation for humankind... He is God. He is God if that is the case. Very important for us to understand this. This is not a stretch. The previous day in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, they said, But you denied the holy and righteous one, he is God, 
and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. He is God. He is God. Whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. We see it right through the, the gospel preaching in Acts. In uh, the previous chapter again, in, in Acts 20, tw uh, sorry, 2, 21, we see that Jesus is the Lord that is called upon so that we can be saved. This is quoting from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. The word Lord there, if you turn back at some point, <laughs> it's your homework, turn back to Joel 2.32, look at the word Lord and you'll see it's in all capital letters. What's that saying? Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. The Lord that you call on to be saved. And let me tell you, these people did not miss that. They did not miss that. Powerful. Jesus is called Lord 72 times in Acts. In 1036, he's called Lord of all. He is God. He is God. Jesus is spoken of in ways that can only relate to God in the book of Acts. It is said that at Pentecost, Jesus poured out the Spirit. He's God. Acts 2.33. That he receives the souls of dying saints. Acts 7.59. Uh, that he is the judge of all men. Acts 10.42. That he is the rightful object of faith. Acts 11, 17 and 16, 31. That when people believe in him, they are saved by his grace. 15, 11. Forgiven through his name. 10, 43. And they need to be baptized in that name. 19, 5. And that his name is rightly to be extolled. In 19, 17. And that he is the one who entrusts ministry to his servants. In Acts 20, 24. This is not an obscure doctrine. This is not an obscure doctrine. It is explicit and non-negotiable. So important. In Jesus, we have all that we need for a savior because he's divine. He's divine. The next part we see here is that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ. Is the Christ, the promised deliverer, and Savior that we see so often spoken of in, in the Gospels. But what's pointed out in the previous chapter is that this Christ had to suffer. This Christ had to suffer. Paul also mentions this twice. The Christ had to suffer. And uh, sorry, in uh, chapter 3, verse 18. You can have my notes if you can't keep up with all the references. Sorry about that if your hand's burning um, as you're, you're writing these. I'm a bit excited. Um, what we see also in that chapter is that he was one and the same with the great suffering servant that we read or uh, spoken of so beautifully in the last chapters of Isaiah. We see that in, in chapter 3. Um, as we see the language used there in, in uh, verses 13 and 14 of, of chapter 3, calling Jesus the servant of God, the righteous one, saying he would be exalted, speaking of his being handed over. They're all terms that come directly from the Greek translation of the great servant song that we all love in Isaiah 52, 13 through to 53, 12. Unmistakable. Do you think there is any chance that these scholars of the Old Testament would miss that? The servant. The suffering one. 
powerful truth. And so when we come to the third aspect of this gospel, the fact that Jesus died, it is not just a matter of fact that he's saying here, uh, speaking here to them. It is not just an accusation. It certainly is an accusation, but it's not just an accusation. It's ringing with the staggering claims made the previous day. Couched in the understanding that, that, Jesus, uh, that Peter gave at Pentecost uh, when he said that this happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What he's saying here is soaked in the blood of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we, that's them, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep had gone astray and they certainly had. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The man, Jesus, lived as a human, obeyed as a human, fulfilled all righteousness as a human, suffered as a human, died as a human, and yet because of the infinite value of his being as the eternal son, his death could stand in the place of every person who would ever come to him for His perfect life could be counted for yours. No one else could do that. No one else could do that. There have been many martyrs in human history, many self-sacrificing death, deaths that show incredible love and devotion. Not one of those deaths could save a single soul from the wrath of God because they're not Jesus. They're not Jesus. The next part we come to here is that Jesus rose from the dead and there's so many things you could say about uh, Jesus rising from the dead. I quickly looked in, in biblical doctrine the other day, and there's 20 points. And even though my watch is broken, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Let me look at three basic things. Jesus died for sure. He died a martyr's death for sure. But it was not just that. It was not just that. Jesus is a victor. He is a victor. In chapter 2.24, it says, It was not possible for him to be held by death. He's a victor. His resurrection proves that his work on the cross was effective. So much so that later Paul would say, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So important, the resurrection. The explicit reason why the Sadducees uh, had him arrested here is that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Interesting wording. Interesting wording. It doesn't say that they were proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. It says that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. A much wider inference. That Jesus' resurrection, as, as Andre shared last night, again, I'm just re-preaching it, brother. It's, uh, <laughs> Jesus' resurrection is our guarantee of resurrection. 
Jesus' resurrection is our guarantee of resurrection. Um, let me tell you, I want to be resurrected. Are you weary of your flesh? I'm weary of my flesh. Resurrection is a beautiful thing. Uh, I love the comment David Peterson writes on this verse. He says, Jesus' resurrection guarantees that God's promise to restore everything will most surely be fulfilled and that those who trust in Jesus will enjoy all the benefits of the salvation that his resurrection makes possible in the new creation. Isn't that beautiful? Well, lastly, stay with me. God exalted him. God exalted him. Peter is saying, you men, you builders, you threw him away like a misshapen rock. There's no more powerful picture of throwing someone away than killing them, right? And he says, no, but God. God exalted him. God wants him recognized as the most important rock in the building. Jesus is exalted. So important for us to see this in chapter 2 and chapter 5. It is said that, that God exalted Jesus to his right hand. And as we saw last night, this was not to receive greater divinity, as we saw in John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He didn't need new glory. Jesus was already divine, already God. But after his willing humiliation, God exalted him and lifted him up. And he demands that every, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God demands this. I love that the Holy Spirit demands this also. The Holy Spirit draws our hearts to sing Jesus' praises from generation to generation and throughout eternity, to adore him in communion, to share him with our children, to whisper his name in workplaces and in our school environment, to smuggle his name where it's forbidden, to proclaim him from pulpits and street corners and throughout this world. He is exalted. He is exalted. He has been, he is, and he will be. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus, this Jesus is the one source of eternal salvation. He's the only one that's able to give end-to-end -end salvation. Salvation from eternity to eternity. And you know what? That's the only salvation that gives me any hope. It's the only salvation that gives me any hope. If any part of my salvation at any point in my Christian life was up to me, I'd be dejected. I wouldn't have hope. Why? Because no one knows me like me. No one knows you like you. But we can hope. Because the point where God chose you and gave you to Christ in eternity past to the point where you stand before his throne and cry, worthy is the Lamb. Jesus is the source of your salvation right through there. I'm just going to read a passage to you. If you're from Riverbend, you'll, you'll be very familiar with this. It's from John chapter 6. Just let these words wash over you. Jesus said to him, beginning in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. 
all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He has known you from eternity past. And he came to this earth to rescue you. You are loved. He perfectly obeyed his father, fulfilling all righteousness, so that that could be credited to you. You are righteous. He himself bore your sins in his body on the tree and rose on the third day. You are forgiven. You are holy. He stands beside you to strengthen you. He dwells within you as your hope of glory. He sends his spirit to empower you and to shape you into his image. He stands before you as your perfect example and your goal. He stands behind you as your mighty guard so that the Satan, Satan can't lay a finger on you. He stands before the Father on your behalf interceding for you. Do you think God hears his prayers? I'm sure I missed lots of things. You have a true, real, reliable salvation because of this name, this person. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, suffering servant, eternal divine son, glorious, exalted Lord. There is salvation in no one else. This brings me, of course, to the last aspect of the apostolic message. It is an exclusive message. An exclusive message. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do I even need to comment on this verse? I kind of have to because I'm supposed to be preaching it, right? Very clear language of all the men who have ever lived, only Jesus. Of all the children that have ever been given a name, only the name of Jesus. And we must be saved through that name. The word day there simply means uh, it is necessary. We must come through him. It is necessary to be saved through Jesus. There is no other way. I wondered as I was thinking through this, this verse... Would I come to the same conclusion if I had never read this verse? Would I come to the same conclusion if I'd never read John 14, 6? Would I come to the same conclusion if I'd never read John 3, verses 16 through 18? I would. I'm so thankful to God that he spells things out in words of one syllable for me. <laughs> but I would have come to the same conclusion. Think about that with me. The... the Amazing creator God creates this world that screams out of, his exist, uh, of who he is, his existence, his attributes, and the people that he created and showered his love on and made us so incredible say, no, we will not follow you. I don't want to talk about your name. And, and his answer to that 
is to send his only son to die for their sins. Do you think there is the slightest chance, any chance, that he will then turn around and go, but if that's not convenient, what can you come up with? That is, that is just blasphemous, just unthinkable, insulting to God in the deepest possible way. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. And, it, and we have this innate Sickening desire to think, well, I hope they're okay. <laughs> I hope someone uh, who, who is maybe, you know, sincere enough in their own religion, they'll be okay. I don't know, maybe that comforts us somehow, but it's foreign to Scripture. Foreign to Scripture. Paul uh, wrote a letter to some incredibly religious people before they became Christians, the Ephesians, renowned for their religion in that area. He said these words to them prior to their belief, their state prior to their belief. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind and were by nature Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Seeing any hope there? There's another religious man mentioned in there. Do you notice Paul's saying we? As religious as he could be. Even in what was prior to Christ's coming, the only true religion. But after Christ's coming, outside of Christ there is only wrath. Outside of belief in Christ, there is only wrath. Well, the other question comes up whether people can believe in Christ without hearing the gospel. Well, the Bible tells us what sparks saving faith. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Only the gospel. Only the gospel. This is part of the famous how can they, how can they, how can they section. To come to saving faith, people must be sent to preach. People must be sent to preach. They must hear the gospel. Well, we're, we're reformed. I certainly am. Isn't salvation about God's initiative in regenerating us? Yes, <laughs> certainly is. Have you ever looked at how God elected to do that? Why use chose when you can say elected, right? <laughs> Both James 1.18 and 1 Peter 1.23 say that the instrument that God uses to spark a heart is the preaching of the word of God. The preaching of the word of God. He has entrusted this message to the church. To the church. So this is his will. This is his commission that you and I would share this truth and that you and I would share the joy of seeing unworthy people like us forgiven and made new in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a massive need in our world. It's a massive need in our country that we would be faithful. There's a pressing, urgent need for many of us to leave here 
and bring the message of God, message of Jesus Christ to some of the 7,416 people groups who are classified as unreached. People who cannot currently hear the gospel, that's 3.29 billion people. And God can use us to do that. Weak people, acting contrary to our flesh, taking a contrary message to contrary people and watching Jesus Christ transform their life. It's a beautiful truth. May the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be proclaimed and believed and praised and adored and glorified throughout our nation, throughout this world, and we know it's going to happen throughout eternity. And he's worthy of that. Let's pray together. Lord, we cry worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. We have received a, a wonderful salvation. Something that, that is, has no source in ourselves. Entirely because of you, Lord Jesus. That you were willing to come to this earth to bear our sins, to rise again. And you still are everything we need every day of our life. Lord God, help us to understand this truth. Burn in our hearts, pour out of our mouths, that we may see many people in this nation and throughout the world come to know this Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for what we received, Lord. And Lord, we pray that, that you would use us in the process that we can share in the joy of seeing many people come to know you. Thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.